Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. In this episode, it's just the two of us to talk about something you may have heard of, the novel coronavirus, because one of us has had now a very intimate encounter. Yes, extraordinarily intimate, unfortunately. (laughs) With the virus. So first off, um, how you doing? I am fine now. You know, fortunately, my case of COVID was very mild. I attribute that largely to the fact that I was triple vaxxed. I'd had the booster about two weeks before. Yeah, so now I'm fine. I don't seem to have any lingering Which brand? Or Are you a Pfizer girl? Oh, uh, Pfizer. Moderna. Yeah. Pfizer party. It's, I feel like there's kind of no way to start without sounding, like, accusatory. Like, what did you do wrong that you got co- But I don't, you know... My suspicion is I went to a burlesque show, but I don't know. Um, The timing for that doesn't quite line up, but that's the closest thing I can think of. They always said that it would be the decadent transsexuals (laughs) bringing us down, and you've only proved them right so far. Yeah, yeah. And I was performing, too. I wasn't just attending as an audience member, so it's even worse. Tessa! No, but I do think that gets into, I spend too much time on Twitter, which my mom has reportedly told me not to do, and I've ignored her because I'm an adult. <laughs> I probably shouldn't, though, because Twitter is not great for um, mental health. But I will say there are a lot of back and forths on Twitter, people who are very annoyed with those who are not taking what they deem to be appropriate protective action versus those who are continuously getting mad at what they perceive as leftist scolds who are disengaged from the reality of life during a pandemic. In my defense, I, you know, I had been triple vaxxed and I was also wearing a mask pretty much the entire time, but it was a cloth mask, which at the time I didn't realize apparently is not necessarily sufficient to protect you from the new Omicron variant. And I will say, I don't want to be, it's my natural propensity is to be one of those leftist scolds because golly, I do love to scold people, but (laughs) you know, and so I was having this conversation with my sister and my sister is an extrovert and I'm an introvert. And I know people on the internet love to get annoying about this rigid introvert extrovert dichotomy where particularly self-identified introverts get very weird about it. Like, oh, I like to read books and think thoughts, whereas extroverts are all going to burlesque shows and getting sicknesses from each other sexual and otherwise i don't (laughs) think that but it's been very easy for me emotionally to be quite limited in my context throughout the pandemic because i as we have discussed before i heard about the serbian monk who lives in a cave and i was a little bit jealous of that guy (laughs) that's where i'm at and my sister was like A lot of us just can't, we just like literally cannot continue with that level of restriction. And I was like, I don't understand it, but I have to respect it. Particularly because I've been reading a book called How to Survive a Plague, which is about the AIDS epidemic. There have been a lot of comparisons drawn between COVID and HIV AIDS, not because they are virally 
very similar, but because those are both kind of the major pandemics in living memory of most of the people alive today. And sort of a crucial lesson learned through the AIDS crisis was that a very rigid all or nothing approach rarely actually works for risk mitigation because people will find the all unbearable and thus will do nothing. This is kind of also the failure of abstinence-only education with regards to, you know, sexual education. Right, yeah. And why that leads to so many more um, unplanned teen pregnancies and STI transmission, et cetera, et cetera. Where if you expect people to just completely lock themselves down and indulge in absolutely none of the pleasures of life, that is not going to fly for everybody except extremely introverted dorks who have generalized anxiety disorder. My roundabout point is I am emphatically not blaming you for getting COVID, um, particularly because we both live in what is currently known as Central Arizona, and uh, people are not... It's it's not great out there. Yeah, what's particularly annoying is that at least for the uh, company that I performed with, like they're very strict about it. You know, you have to have proof of vaccination or you know, a negative COVID test, masking is required. So I'm pretty sure it wasn't any of us. I'm pretty sure it was one of the audience members. Um, and yeah, they are a much greater selection or much wider selection of the general public here in lovely Arizona and are, as a result, much less likely to be observant of precautions for the pandemic. But yeah, if you don't mind, could we talk a little bit about the experience of getting sure. COVID? what it felt like, how it compared to other viruses you've had in your life. So it was, you know, again, I was lucky in that it was very, very mild. I mean, as these things go, um, basically, you know, it, it started on the Tuesday, um, I guess week and a half before Christmas. So yeah, on, on Tuesday the 15th, you know, noticed a little like scratchiness in my throat, occasional cough, a little congestion, nothing much. I actually thought it was a, like just a cold at first, you know, nothing major. And uh, I, I didn't really think too much of it for like the next two days. I mean, I, I isolated myself just to be on the safe side, but, um, you know, it, it didn't register as COVID for me until I went and, you know, went to uh, ASU for context. Uh, ASU uh, provides a free testing service based off of a, a saliva-based PCR test, which is highly accurate, but takes about 24 hours to get back to you. And, you know, I, I dropped off my saliva sample, which is all now completely automated. It's very, very sleek. Again, I, I was expecting a negative because I figured, oh, this probably isn't COVID. Well, I take that back. Part of me was wondering, well, I mean, I did get vaccinated. Maybe this is COVID and that's why it's so mild. But, I, you know, I was not really expecting it to be COVID. And so I was kind of a little shocked when it turned out to be positive. ASU, to their credit, responded immediately. You know, I got texts and phone calls and emails, you know, making sure that I knew how to properly isolate and that uh, who to call if my symptoms worsened, etc. And that that uh, basically I was not to go anywhere or have contact with anyone to the extent possible for the next 10 days. And then, you know, about 48 hours before that 
10-day window wound up, they would send me a survey about my symptoms and depending on that, set up a, cons a, a telehealth consult. My symptoms had not improved. If they had improved, then they would potentially send me a letter on the 10th day officially clearing me to leave isolation. Um, and I was impressed, you know, with how fast and like how thorough it was. I hadn't realized that ASU's response had actually become that sophisticated. I, I guess I have low expectations for the state. I wonder why. Yeah, can't imagine why. In terms of symptoms, like about four or five days in, they did get a little bit worse. I had more coughing, still not like as bad as some head colds I've had before, but it was definitely more coughing. You know, one day I ended up sleeping for like 13 hours straight, which is a lot for me. Um, so, you know, I would say, I would, I, I, you know, I would say 13 hours is generally a lot for most people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so there was definitely loss of energy. Um, I was running, I later discovered a mild fever. It, you know, was not particularly alarming. It never broke a hundred, but it was technically elevated. Fortunately, because it was mild enough, a lot of times I didn't bother taking like fever reducing medication for it because when it's that low, it actually helps boost your immune system, but doesn't really interfere with your day-to-day -day life. And that's basically how it went. Um, the one thing that did make it distinguishable from, you know, just a common cold is that it did take a few more days longer to wrap up. Usually with common colds, I'm done with them within a week. With this, it went a bit longer before the symptoms really started to fade. Well, I, did you initially get tested just out of an abundance of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anytime I have symptoms, or frankly, anytime that I've just been in a place where I might have been exposed, I got tested just to be on the safe side. Interestingly enough, I have been told not to to test myself unless I have like re you know reason to believe I've somehow gotten sick again for the next three months because otherwise there's a risk of false positive. Mm. I guess because you know the PCR antigen test will still pick up on the fact that you know you still have antibodies or whatnot. At least that's what I'm assuming. Well, can I ask? You are married. Yes. And you live with your wife, as many wives do. Did Alex get? your wife develop any kind of symptomatic she did depression. not um okay. she you know has she been tested she was and she uh came back negative there was one day where she was a little tired it uh yeah no she never had full-blown symptoms she never tested positive the entire time even though you know we were staying in the same bed together which technically speaking you're not supposed to do if you can avoid it we have a small one-bedroom apartment where frequently the ventilation doesn't work anyways so you know there was really no way for her to avoid it yeah so she never tested positive and like i said for my own my symptoms were again very mild you know i never had the loss of taste or smell at least beyond what you would normally get from being congested you know i never had any of the wheezing you know the difficulty shortness of breath none of the weirder stuff that can happen with covid um so i was fortunate in that regard but yeah so and then you know 10th day rolled around i hadn't had a fever in at least 48 hours which was one of the major um criteria they had for whether or not you would be cleared from isolation you know my symptoms had been improving so you know i got the official letter then saying that you've been cleared and you know can leave your apartment if you want to although i still didn't do that for like another three or four days just to be safe it was not a terrible experience i would have obviously preferred not to have gotten covid but if i have to get covid this is probably the best possible way you can get it um and still be symptomatic in a weird way, it did mean that my wife and I got to have a quiet little Christmas, just the two of us, because uh, I was still in isolation and there was no way we were going to go visit her parents like we normally do. Yeah, this is only barely related, but just I'm so mad at everybody who lies and says that they've been vaccinated 
and then they go hang out with people and then it turns out they were positive and they weren't vaccinated Jeez. and they put everybody at risk. I've seen a lot of these stories, which is why I'm probably never going to trust a human person ever again. Yeah, it's really discouraging, particularly since, you know, it was a bad idea before we had Omicron, but little bit of epidemiology for all of our listeners. There's a concept called the basic reproductive rate or the R naught, because it's an R with a little zero attached to it. And that is pretty much on average, how many, if you're infected, on average, how many other people will you infect before you recover from the disease um, and, you know, are no longer contagious? For most of COVID-19's history, it was six or below, which is a lot. It's definitely on the higher end. I have seen estimates, and there isn't necessarily consensus on this, but there's at least some serious estimates that put it as 15 or higher. If you go out and you have COVID, even if you're asymptomatic, you could infect as many as 15 other people or more. And that literally makes it the second most contagious virus known, which is only the the, the most one contagious one is measles, which has an R naught of like 18 or 19. Um, so it you know it's still pretty close to measles too. Um, mm. And I, I think people just haven't really wrapped their heads around like how catchy this variant is. I love that these, this is sarcasm, that these two most infectious viruses are both ones that have been heavily involved with the anti-vax movement. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, well, I, I mean, there's a reason vaccines against them are pretty much mandatory, especially for measles, if you want to do anything in public. Um, and that's because they are so contagious. I propose, you can join my movement if you want, of a counterbalance to the anti-vax movement of a max-vax movement, where just shoot me up with anything you Oh, can. yeah. Yeah, you no, I'm totally mean? down for this. I was talking to my mom the other day, and I was like, I would love to get vaccinated against shingles. And she was like, I think you're too young. And I was like, yeah, but I don't have to be. Yeah, exactly. You know, sign me up for all of it. You know, HPV, every single flu shot, you name yellow it, I'll fever, take it. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I probably won't get yellow fever, but I could. You know, I sure don't want to. Hell, throwing rabies there, too, while you're at it, just in yeah, case. Yeah, why not? I go outside. There's rabies out there. It's actually surprisingly, frustratingly difficult to get a rabies vaccine. Like, I'm not even sure if my wife was ever vaccinated and I she was a veterinarian. Have, we talked about this with um, Ray. Yeah, yeah. They keep increasing, like, the range of ages and genders that the HPV vaccine, whichever one is preeminent HPV vaccine on the market is, they just keep increasing that. And it's it's always baffled me that originally it was only recommended for girls and by girls of course that means people who were born with vulva right mm -hmm. because most of these people are having sex with people with primarily external genitalia just statistically and they're getting it from somebody so i just i've never understood the reasoning behind not just yeah recommending the vaccine i don't either i mean if you want to actually like take out a virus or at least minimize it, you should be including the people who can spread it, even if it doesn't really manifest in symptoms. And also, you know, it can, you know, there is a risk associated with penile cancer, I believe. Well, it's HPV. HPVs. The HPVs that are sexually transmitted are, I believe, the leading cause of oropharyngeal cancer. Ooh. 
I didn't know that. Let me Google this real quick so that I'm not telling tales out of school. From the CDC, which I'm kind of, I feel broken up with a little bit right now, but whatever. Okay. HPV can infect the mouth and throat and cause cancers of the oropharynx, back of the throat, including the base of the tongue and tonsils. This is called oropharyngeal cancer. HPV is thought to cause 70% of oropharyngeal cancers in the United States. Listen, I know not to get blue. Women love going down on each other. God bless. But inevitably, there are going to be people who don't have a cervix who are also performing those actions. Yep. You know, you picking yeah. up what I'm putting down. Plus, I feel like I've read, even if only cis people existed, sometimes men are gay. You, you know? Um, it has been known to happen. It has been known to happen. Occasionally. Listen, genitals, tongues, fingers, they all go all over the place, and HPVs are not transmitted via fluid. They are topical infections. Like So even like wearing a condom, for instance, is not going to completely protect against HPV transmission because it is surface-to-surface, not liquid-based. So that's just a PSA for everybody. If you thought using protection for oral sex with people was weird, maybe just reconsider because... You don't know where somebody's been, and the people you're hooking up with don't know where you've been. (laughs) And probably neither do you, in terms of viral exposure. Also, get vaccinated. Just get all of them. If somebody is like, hey, do you want this vaccine? Your best answer is usually probably yes. Usually. But to wind this all back, I am 100% on board with Max Vax. Nice. Well, we got two of us. I feel like I saw somebody talk about this on Twitter one time, so that's three. <laughs> Baby steps, Charles. Baby steps. So, well, I, to make this more of a rounded, like, scientifically informative episode, I also thought it would be fun to investigate a question that I have had about vaccines um, and viruses. And so I was thinking about it, and I was reading some different stuff. And I was curious why we do not hear about vaccine-resistant evolution of viruses the same way we hear about antibiotic-resistant evolution of pathogens like bacteria. Have you ever thought about this? You know, that is a good question. I mean, we clearly see it with, like, you know, obviously in my case, that's exactly what happened is that, you know, a strain developed, which was able to evade at least somewhat the immune protection generated by um a vaccine. And I know that's also why people need to, you know, they roll out a different flu vaccine every year. Um, I think the reason that it's less commonly thought about is because the mutation time for viruses can vary tremendously. Well, I did. I looked into this and I found a couple of papers slash articles by this pair of researchers who I'm just going to assume are best friends because they wrote multiple articles on the same topic together david a kennedy and andrew f reed from the center for infectious disease dynamics departments of biology and entomology the pennsylvania state university and so they've written several papers about this they published one in 2017 called why does drug resistance readily evolve but vaccine resistance does not and then another in 2018 why the evolution of vaccine resistance is less of a concern than the evolution of drug resistance and their conclusion was basically that there are two or three primary factors for why we so much more often see um, specifically evolution of resistance in bacteria following 
uh, treatment through antibiotics versus evolution of resistance in viruses following widespread vaccination. And their conclusion was basically, first, that vaccines are generally prophylactic rather than reactive, whereas treatment for bacterial infections, for instance, are more reactive, meaning that you generally get vaccinated against a virus well before and by design before you have experienced infection by that virus. And part of the goal of the vaccine is to prevent a large enough population of that virus inside your body to, you know, constitute like a widespread infection versus if you are infected with a bacterium, you generally are only going to receive treatment once you are symptomatic from that infection. And by that point, necessarily the population of the pathogen is quite large. Whereas if you are vaccinated against a virus, the whole idea, putting it very simply, is that you will be able to mount an immune response and keep that viral population low before it can really cause symptoms. So the actual population size of things that are reacting to whatever treatment is being given is usually much, much bigger in, for instance, bacteria than viruses. And then secondly, quote, evolution-proof vaccines induce immune responses that attack several different parts of the microbe at the same time, meaning that a vaccine generally will direct an immune response against several different aspects of the thing that is mounting an invasion. So in the case of like COVID-19 vaccines, it can be against like some of the spike proteins, but then some other uh, recognizable proteins. And they did find that this has already been shown in the laboratory for SARS-CoV-2. The virus rapidly evolved resistance to antibodies targeting a single site, but struggled to evolve resistance to a cocktail of antibodies, each targeting multiple different sites. So when you have vaccines that are well-engineered to attack invading pathogens, I think it's easy to forget that a virus is a physical object in space. Maybe it doesn't slip other people's minds the way that it does mine, but because viruses are so small and we tend to think of them as sort of not rooted in a in an imaginable physical reality right, right. the way yeah the virus is a tiny physical thing that has recognizable physical characteristics and so a well-engineered vaccine a really effective vaccine usually will be one that will be like will tell your immune system or whatever and i hope there are no virologists epidemiologists virus people microbiologists in the audience screaming at me for oversimplifying things if they are send in an audio clip and we'll put it in the next episode but generally if you like the coronavirus is known for its spike proteins on the outside which help it gain access to cells right but we have seen lots of different little mutations in different parts of the genome of the virus that change like this protein or they change that protein and so it is easy for a singular mutation. And there have been, across different variants, evidence of the same mutation evolving independently multiple different times in different lineages and across variants um, that might in it, you know, increase efficacy of transmission, might increase like, you know, how harshly they affect the body, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have vaccines that target multiple different things, even if they can randomly mutate 
one, you know, mutation that helps increase transmissibility, if that is sort of a winning card, but there are still these five other mutations that are targeted effectively by the vaccine, that still helps shut down infection and population growth much more than a sort of a generalized antibiotic would against bacteria. So that's very interesting. And it it seems like kind of what you referenced, the major form of evolution that we see post-vaccination in sort of viruses that are well-established within different host populations. So for example, in COVID, that the most common form of evolution is not the evolution of resistance specifically within certain strains or within certain lineages to the vaccine specifically, but instead the effective suppression of certain strains and then the replacement of them by others that already have kind of a natural sort of resistance to the vaccines that are being used, which is kind of different from the evolution of resistant traits and their uh you know, proliferation within a certain strain. Right. But it's basically like, instead of seeing changes within a strain, we're seeing the vaccine or a vaccine theoretically tamp down a specific strain and then others that have already been from one of these papers. This focus excludes cases of, quote, common variant serotype replacement in which strains of a pathogen that were previously observed but intentionally not targeted by vaccines rise in frequency after the onset of vaccination. Although serotype replacement is a form of evolution and an important consideration in a vaccinated host population, this process is perhaps better explained by purely ecological factors and thus warrants separate exploration. Which I think is, this paper is from 2018, so it was not speaking about the novel coronavirus, but from what I can tell, this seems like more of a case where it is less that vaccination has driven the evolution of new variants, but that because so we have such a huge population of people who are susceptible or infected, and we have so many situations in which somebody can rapidly spread it to a lot of different people, these mutations happen naturally because mutations just happen in the copying over of genetic material across all life forms that have genetic material as far as we know and that they opportunistically then become much more well established versus the specific mutation being driven by vaccines and resistance to vaccines themselves which i guess is good news um although it's hard to feel particularly hopeful about anything but i mean it is good news that not only did you not become seriously ill with covid but you had a pretty mild case you were able to self-isolate which is great so you hopefully didn't infect anybody else and yeah that's what i'm hoping even your wife who lives with you yeah presumably didn't get i mean it's possible that she did and it just didn't show up in the one test that she took. We've wondered about that. But in any case, she was never symptomatic. So that's good news. The bad news is um, pretty much all the other news. Yep. I actually was thinking in a new year, 
it would be fun to make new questions for our like end of episode discussions. Hmm. I have one. Sure. Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. So I've been rereading Animorphs. As anybody who follows us on Twitter will know, because that account is now an Animorphs account. Hmm. And I have no regrets and no apologies. So in the first book, spoiler warning, but one of the premises of the books is that these kids are given this alien power to morph. If they acquire animal DNA, they can then become that animal. But if you stay in a morph for more than two hours, you will get stuck in that morph and you can never get out of it. And so my question to you is if you had to become what the Andalites know as a nothlet, i.e. someone stuck in a morph, what do you think would be sort of your best case scenario? You know, it's funny because I knew exactly where that's where this question was going. I would probably go with Swan because you get to fly, but you're big enough that no one wants to mess with you. And also... My original choice was, like, falcon or some bird of prey, but then I'd feel, like, morally ambiguous about, like, having to eat small, cute rodents. But swans mostly just eat, you know, subaquatic vegetation and, you know, doesn't look unappealing. Um, And, you know, they are strong enough that, you know, they can easily break your nose. So, um, yeah, you know, what's not to like? How how long do swans generally live? I'm not sure. I mean, that's going to be, like... Actually, if we're going to go based on longevity, a better bet would probably be one of the uh, South American parrots, since they can live up to 75 to 100 years. And you probably have a complex enough larynx or larynx equivalent. I, I don't know exactly. I think birds have a cernix, technically. Oh, I um, don't know. Alex, what's the equivalent for larynx and birds? Ha, I remembered it. It's syrinx. But they have a sophisticated enough syrinx, you could probably still talk to people. So that'd be nice. I mean... If you're an athlete, you're still telepathic, so it probably doesn't matter. But, you know, still, it'd be cool to mess with people. I was thinking about this earlier, and my obvious answer is cat, right? God's most perfect animal. But I'm, I would be so, I have such social anxiety that I would be really afraid that I would become a cat and then other cats would reject me <laughs> and I sh- that would be devastating absolutely devastating because my other thing is i don't know that you necessarily want to go for longevity because you are now in your case a bird and you can't like go to the movie theater or that's a good point yeah i hadn't thought about that I, a lot of it would depend on quality of life because i think because tobias kind of has a refuge emotionally where he has a project to focus on which is disrupting the Yurk invasion of earth but like as we see after the series ends and all these kids are traumatized poor guys but he kind of loses himself because he kind of doesn't have anything to do anymore except just be a bird yep and other reasons including the death of loved ones very close to him a traumatic war moral compromise i mean the kid's basically a child soldier he's going to be messed up essentially yes but yeah, so other than Cat, it's tough. I definitely wouldn't go for any of the other apes, though, because I think being relatively close to human, but definitively not human, would be worse than becoming something very Agreed. Different. I mean, I think probably a large herbivore that nobody, like a hippo, would be a good idea. <laughs> Especially if you could live in a zoo. 
Because then you definitely aren't getting predated upon. Like, yeah, not even yeah. in the attempts. You've got it pretty made. And if you get bored, you can just terrorize zookeepers. And I, I, I honestly suspect that probably never gets old. Probably. Because here's the other thing that I know about zookeepers, which is that they, like most biologists who get really attached to study subjects, are willing to cut the things hurting them a huge amount of slack. Like, if you're a hippo in a zoo, there is going to be somebody who is taking care of you. Even if you break their leg, they're <laughs> they're still going to love you unconditionally. I had not thought about that, but that's a good point. So, I, I think it's not... I don't feel the greatest kinship with hippos, but I think practically and logistically speaking, I think a hippo is a good option. Especially because I am a vegetarian as a human which is not necessarily a moral stance i like don't think that in a right but you want to keep it consistent it's at this point it's just like i think it would really bum me out to have to like because you know thinking about being like a large cat like a tiger or something right where you're big beautiful powerful nobody's gonna mess with you etc etc you still have to like run stuff down and hunt yeah it's a lot more effort kind of just want to chill in a river yeah you know this is kind of why i went for swan initially is because you know you just hang out in a lake looking pretty if anyone messes with you you can break their nose you can pretend to be a princess yeah yeah oh you say that like i'm not a princess i have no response to that. <laughs> sorry <laughs> you left than, it wide open i couldn't it's we just we're monarchy is a thing of the past uh, agreed agreed um <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that's our first good new question. If you had to get stuck in a morph, which one would you go for? We got to get furries on the pod and ask them that because I think they would have... Well, because here's here's another idea. We know that... Have you read many of the Animorphs books? Yes, although it's been a while for some of them. Okay, but you know that Axe, the Andalite who joins their group creates a human morph by taking the dna from jake and rachel and cassie yeah i remember that one yeah from episode four uh book four the message yes so i'm wondering if you were a furry and you were like my persona is like a bird deer i'm like part bird and i'm part deer could you take dna from a bird and dna from a deer and make your like could you make a morph okay out of your persona? this is going to be spoilers but um for our future talk or future episode on this very subject namely animorphs featuring potentially my wife a uh former veterinarian turned physicist who is probably the natural person to have on the show uh That's but the perfect combination of specialties. you cannot because uh, the or- different organ systems of the animal in question, of the animals plural in question, um, will interfere with each other. I'm picking up what you're putting down. She can explain it better than I can. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we we've actually had this discussion, believe it or not. I um, are you? Of course, I believe it. <laughs> I know who I'm talking to. But okay, a different question. Let's say you were like Cassie and really, really good at morphing. I guess you can't go from one morph to another, though. So you could only do like a human yeah. other animal hybrid. Because I don't think we've seen, because there are a number of close calls in the books where they're like, demorph, demorph, demorph. And they like say that they're having trouble getting out of a morph and they kind of feel kind of stuck. 
but we ha- I don't know that there is a case of somebody getting stuck not in a full morph but in an intermediate stage. Yeah, I don't think there is. So if you were so like let's say you were like Kathy who is the best a very artistic morpher, my favorite character. If anybody wants to be negative about Cassie, they're not they're simply not allowed on the podcast. That's my rule. That's my hard limit. But like let's say that you wanted to have Antinny. This here's what I'm saying. <laughs> Are cat boys a possibility in the Animorphs universe? You know what? I don't know. Again, I think that'd be an excellent question for the Animorphs episode, because I-, I am not sure. Okay, well I think that's a perfect ending place. Great. Well, if people want to talk about this subject with me, I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. And I am on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-R-M-A-S-E, although I haven't been on very often in the last month or so, just mental health break. You can also find out information about my stuff at TessaFisher.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at ASABpod. If you want to talk about Animorphs there also, uh, we also have a website asabpodcast.com where you can find show notes and transcripts for every episode and if you enjoy the show please tell other people who you think might enjoy it because supposedly that's the best way that podcasts grow and until next time keep on sciencing